This is Fast Asleep, and welcome back to part three of our H.G. Wells story. We bring you Wells' original ending in this episode. It may be of interest to note that he later wrote another ending, and you may want to explore that. But for now, please, let's just tuck in and enjoy the conclusion of The Country of the Blind. Bogota, put down that spade and come off the grass. The last order, grotesque in its urban familiarity, produced a gust of anger. I'll hurt you, he said, sobbing with emotion. By heaven, I'll hurt you. Leave me alone. And he began to run, not knowing clearly where to run. He ran from the nearest blind man because, well, it was a horror to hit him. He stopped and then made a dash to escape from their closing ranks. He made for where a gap was wide, and the men on either side, with a quick perception of the approach of his paces, rushed in on one another. He sprang forward and then saw he must be caught and swish the spade had struck. He felt the soft thud of hand and arm and the man was down with a yell of pain and he was through, through. And then he was close to the street of houses again and blind men whirling spades and stakes were running with a reasoned swiftness hither and thither. He heard steps behind him just in time and found a tall man rushing forward and swiping at the sound of him. He lost his nerve, hurled his spade a yard wide of this antagonist and whirled about and fled, fairly yelling as he dodged another. He was panic-stricken. He ran furiously to and fro dodging when there was no need to dodge. And in his anxiety, anxiety to see on every side of him at once, stumbling. For a moment he was down and they heard his fall. Far away in the circumferential wall, a little doorway, a little doorway looked like heaven and he set off in a wild rush for it. He did not even look round at his pursuers until it was gained, and he had stumbled across the bridge, clambered a little way among the rocks, to the surprise and dismay of a young llama who went leaping out of sight and lay down sobbing for breath. And so, his coup d'etat came to an end. He stayed outside the wall of the Valley of the Blind for two nights and days without food or shelter and meditated upon the unexpected. During these meditations, he repeated very frequently and always with a profounder note of derision the exploded proverb, In the Country of the Blind. The one-eyed man is king. Hmm. 
He thought chiefly of ways of fighting and conquering these people. And it grew clear that for him, no practicable way was possible. He had no weapons. And now it would be hard to get one. The canker of civilization had got to him even in Bogota, and he could not find it in himself to go down and assassinate a blind man. Of course, if he did that, he might then dictate terms on the threat of assassinating them all. But sooner or later, he must sleep. He tried also to find food among the pine trees, to be comfortable under pine boughs, while the frost fell at night, and with less confidence, to catch a llama by artifice in order to try to kill it. Perhaps by hammering it with a stone, and so finally perhaps to eat some of it. But the llamas had a doubt of him and regarded him with distrustful brown eyes and spat when he drew near. Fear came on him the second day, and fits of shivering. Finally, he crawled down to the wall of the country of the blind and tried to make his terms. He crawled along by the stream, shouting, until two blind men came out to the gate and talked to him. I was mad, he said but I was uh, only newly made. They said that was better. He told them he was wiser now and repented of all he had done. And then he wept without intention, for he was very weak and ill now, and they took that as a favorable sign. They asked him if he still thought he could see uh, no, he said. That was folly. The word means nothing, less than nothing. They asked him what was overhead. Oh, um, about ten times ten the height of a man. There is a roof above the world of rock and very, very smooth, so smooth, so beautifully smooth. He burst again into hysterical tears. Before you ask me any more, give me some food or I shall die. He expected dire punishments, but these blind people were capable of toleration. They regarded his rebellion as but one more proof of his general idiocy and inferiority and after they had whipped him they appointed him to do the simplest and heaviest work they had for anyone to do and he seeing no other way of living did submissively what he was told he was ill for some days and they nursed him kindly that refined his submission, but they insisted on his lying in the dark, and that was a great misery. And blind philosophers came 
and talk to him of the wicked levity of his mind and reproved him so impressively for his doubts about the lid of rock that covered their cosmic casserole that, well, he almost doubted whether indeed he was not the victim of hallucination in not seeing it overhead. So, Nunez became a citizen of the country of the blind, and these people ceased to be a generalized people and became individuals to him and familiar to him, while the world beyond the mountains became more and more remote and unreal. There was Jacob, his master, a kindly man, when not annoyed. There was Pedro, Jacob's nephew, and there was Medina Sorote, who was the youngest daughter of Jacob. She was little esteemed in the world of the blind because she had a clear-cut face and lacked that satisfying, glossy smoothness that is the blind man's ideal of feminine beauty. But Nunez thought her beautiful at first and presently. The most beautiful thing in the whole creation. Her closed eyelids were not sunken and red after the common way of the valley, but lay as though they might open again at any moment. And she had long eyelashes, which were considered a grave disfigurement. And her voice was weak and did not satisfy the acute hearing of the valley swains, so that she had no lover. There came a time when Nunez thought that he could win her. And if so, he would be resigned to live in the valley for all the rest of his days. He watched her. He sought opportunities of doing her little services and presently he found that she observed him. Once at a rest day gathering, they sat side by side in the dim starlight and the music was sweet. His hand came upon hers and he dared to clasp it. And then very tenderly, she returned his pressure. And one day as they were at their meal in the darkness, he felt her hand very softly seeking him. And as it chanced, the fire leapt then and he saw the tenderness of her face. He sought to speak to her. He went to her one day when she was sitting in the summer moonlight, spinning. The light made her a thing of silver and mystery. He sat down at her feet and told her. He loved her and told her how beautiful she seemed to him. He had a lover's voice. He spoke with a tender reverence that came near to awe. And she had never before been touched by adoration. She made no 
definite answer, but it was clear. His words pleased her. After that, he talked to her whenever he could take an opportunity. The valley became the world for him. And the world beyond the mountains where men lived day by day seemed no more than a fairy tale that he would someday pour into her ears. Very tentatively and timidly, he spoke to her of sight. Sight seemed to her the most poetical of fancies, and she listened to his description of the stars and the mountains and her own sweet white-lit beauty, as though it was a guilty indulgence. She did not believe, no. She could only half understand, but she was mysteriously delighted, and it seemed to him that she completely understood. His love lost its awe and took courage. Presently, he was for demanding her of Jacob and the elders in marriage. But she became fearful and delayed. And it was one of her elder sisters who first told Jacob that Medina Sarote and Nunez were in love. There was, from the first, very great opposition to the marriage of Nunez and Medina Sarote. Not so much because they valued her as because they held him as a being apart, an idiot, incompetent thing below the permissible level of a man. Her sisters opposed it bitterly as bringing discredit on them all. And old Jacob, though he had formed a sort of liking for his clumsy, obedient serf, nope, shook his head and said, the thing could not be. The young men were angry at the idea of corrupting the race. And one went so far as to revile and strike Nunez. He struck back. Then, for the first time, he found an advantage in seeing, even by twilight. And after that, after that fight was over, no one was disposed to raise a hand against him. But they still found his marriage impossible. Old Jacob had a tenderness for his last little daughter and was grieved to have her weep upon his shoulder. You see, my dear, he is an idiot. He has delusions. He can't do anything right. I know, wept Medina Sarote, but he's better than he was. He's getting better, and he's strong, dear father, and kind, stronger and kinder than any other man in the world, and he loves me, and father, I love him. Old Jacob was greatly distressed to find her inconsolable 
And besides, what made it more distressing? He liked Nunez for many things. So he went and sat in the windowless council chamber with the other elders and watched the trend of the talk and said at the proper time, well, he's better than he was. Very likely someday we shall find him as sane as ourselves. Then afterwards, one of the elders who thought deeply and had an idea, or he was a doctor among these people, their medicine man, and he had a very philosophical and inventive mind and the idea of curing Nunez of his peculiarities appealed to him. One day, when Jacob was present, he returned to the topic of Nunez. I have examined Nunez, he said, and the case is clearer to me. I think very probably he might be cured. Oh, well, that is what I have always hoped, said old Jacob. His brain is affected, said the blind doctor. Oh, the elders murmured assent. Now, what affects it? Ah, yes, said old Jacob. This, said the doctor, answering his own question. Those queer things that are called the eyes and which exist to make an agreeable depression in the face. They're diseased, in the case of Nunez, in such a way as to affect his brain. They are greatly distended. Oh, he has eyelashes and his eyelids move. And consequently, his brain is in a state of constant irritation and distraction. Yes, said old Jacob. Yes. And I think I may say with reasonable certainty that in order to cure him complete, all that we need to do is a simple and easy surgical operation, namely to remove these irritant bodies. And then he will be sane, then he will be perfectly sane and quite an admirable citizen. Oh, well, thank heaven for science, said old Jacob. And he went forth at once to tell Nunez of his happy hopes. But Nunez's manner of receiving the good news struck him as being cold and disappointing. Well, one might think, he said, from the tone you take that you did not care for my daughter. It was Medina Sarote who persuaded Nunez to face the blind surgeons. You do not want me, he said, to lose my gift of sight. She shook her head. My world is sight. Her head drooped lower. There are the beautiful things, the beautiful little things, 
the flowers, the lichens amidst the rocks, the light and softness on a piece of fur? Will the far sky with its drifting dawn of clouds, the sunsets and the stars, and there is you, for you alone, it is good to have sight, to see your sweet, serene face, your kindly lips, your dear, beautiful hands folded together. It is these eyes of mine, you one, these eyes that hold me to you, that these idiots seek. Instead, I must touch you, hear you, and never see you again. I must come under that roof of rock and stone and darkness, that horrible roof under which your imaginations stoop. No, you would not have me do that. A disagreeable doubt had arisen in him. He stopped and just left the thing a question. I wish, she said, Sometimes, she paused. Yes, he said a little apprehensively. I wish sometimes you would not talk like that. Like what? I know it's pretty. It's your imagination. I love it. But now, he felt cold. Now, he said faintly. She sat quite still. You mean, you think. I should be better. Better, perhaps. Oh, he was realizing things very swiftly. He felt anger, perhaps. Anger at the dull course of fate, but also sympathy for her lack of understanding. A sympathy near akin to pity. Dear, he said, and he could see by her whiteness how Tensely, her spirit pressed against the things she could not say. He put his arms about her. He kissed her ear, and they sat for a time in silence. If I were to consent to this, he said at last in a voice that was very gentle. She flung her arms about him, weeping wildly. Oh! If you would, she sobbed, if only you would. For a week before the operation that was to raise him from his servitude and inferiority to the level of a blind citizen, Nunez knew nothing of sleep. And all through the warm, sunlit hours, while the others slumbered happily, he sat brooding or wandered aimlessly, trying to bring his mind to bear on his dilemma. He had given his answer. He had given his consent. And still, he was not sure. And at last, work time was over. The sun rose in splendor over the golden crests, and his last day of vision began for him. He had a few minutes with Medina Sorote before she went apart 
to sleep. Tomorrow, he said, I shall see no more. Dear heart, she answered and pressed his hands with all her strength. They will hurt you but little, she said. And you were going through this pain. You were going through it, dear lover, for me. Dear, if a woman's heart and life can do it, I will repay you. My dearest one, my dearest, with a tender voice, I will repay you. He was drenched in pity for himself and her. He held her in his arms, pressed his lips to hers, and looked on her sweet face for the last time. Goodbye, he whispered to that dear sight. Goodbye. And then in silence, he turned away from her. She could hear his slow, retreating footsteps, and something in the rhythm of them threw her into a passion of weeping. He walked away. He had fully meant to go to a lonely place where the meadows were beautiful with white narcissus and there remain until the hour of his sacrifice should come. But as he walked, he lifted up his eyes and saw the morning, the morning like an angel in golden armor marching down the steps. It seemed to him that before this splendor, he and this blind world in the valley and his love and all were no more than a pit of sin. He did not turn aside as he meant to do, but went on and passed through the wall of the circumference and out upon the rocks. And his eyes were always upon the sunlit ice and snow. He saw their infinite beauty and his imagination soared over them to the things beyond. He was now to resign forever. He thought of that great free world that he was parted from, the world that was his own. And he had a vision of those further slopes, distances beyond distance, with Bogota, oh, a place of multitudinous stirring beauty, a glory by day, a luminous mystery by night a place of palaces and fountains and statues and white houses lying beautifully in the middle distance. He thought how for a day or so one might come down through passes drawing ever nearer and nearer to its busy streets and ways. He thought of the river journey day by day from Great Bogota to the still vaster world beyond through towns and villages, forests and desert places, 
the rushing river day by day until its banks receded and the big steamers came splashing by and one had reached the sea, oh, the limitless sea, with its thousand islands, its thousands of islands, and its ships seen dimly far away in their incessant journeyings round and about that greater world. And there, unpent by mountains, one saw the sky. The sky, not just a disk as one saw it here, but an arch of immeasurable blue, a deep of deeps, in which the circling stars were floating. His eyes began to scrutinize the great curtain of mountains hmm. with a keener inquiry. For example, if one went so up that gully and to that chimney there, then one might come out high among those stunted pines that ran round in a sort of shelf and rose still higher and higher as it passed above the gorge. Huh. And then that talus might be managed. Thence, perhaps a climb might be found to take him up to the precipice that came below the snow. And if that chimney failed, then another farther to the east might serve his purpose better. And then, then one would be out upon the amber-lit snow there and halfway up to the crest of those beautiful desolations. And we'll suppose one had good fortune. Hmm. He glanced back at the village and then turned right round and regarded it with folded arms. He thought of Medina Sorote, and she had become small and remote. He turned again towards the mountain wall down which the day had come to him. And then very circumspectly he began to climb. His climb. When sunset came, he was no longer climbing, but he was far and high. His clothes were torn and his limbs were blood-stained. He was bruised in many places, but he lay as if he were at ease. And there was a smile on his face. From where he rested, the valley seemed as if it were in a pit and nearly a mile below. Already it was dim with haze and shadow, though the mountain summits around him were things of light and fire. The mountain summits around him were things of light and fire, and the little things in the rocks near at hand were drenched with light and beauty. A vein of green mineral piercing the gray, a flash of small crystal here and there, a minute, minutely beautiful orange lichen close beside his face. There were deep, mysterious shadows in the gorge, blue deepening into purple and purple 
into a luminous darkness. And overhead was the illimitable vastness of the sky. But he heeded these things no longer, but lay quite still there, smiling, as if he were content now, merely to have escaped from the Valley of the Blind, in which he thought to be king. And the glow of the sunset passed, and the night came, and still he lay there under the cold, clear stars. Good night.